This episode of Indie Film Weekly is brought to you by Musicbed. Is there a film idea that you've been dying to make? The team at Musicbed wants to make it a reality. Right now, they're accepting applications for the 2017 Musicbed Film Initiative. They'll select one filmmaker's idea and fund it with more than $70,000 in cash, gear, and post-production. Entry is free, and all you have to do is write a short synopsis and upload a PDF with your pitch materials. Head over to filminitiative.musicbed.com to learn more and submit your own application. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Emily Booter. I'm John Fusco. It's March 9th, 2017, and on this week's show, our South by Southwest preview, how to make your film part of a global conversation, our lens test comparing five different anamorphics on Red Weapon versus Ari Alexa, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Welcome to this week's show. Right now, we're recording in downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. But by the time you hear this, we'll be on the ground in Austin, Texas at South by Southwest. Woo! Breakfast tacos. Arriba. As usual, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. Like you might have missed the fact that this Wednesday was International Women's Day, and this month is Women's History Month. But good thing, you're still in it. So even if you think you missed the boat, there's so much lady to celebrate. That means it's a great time to check out your favorite films by female directors and to take a peek at the Twitter feed of Ava DuVernay's production company, Array, whose handle is at Array Now. The account hosted a 12-hour Twitter takeover to kick off the month, featuring 30 female directors, including some bigger names like Mira Nair and Lucy Walker, and up-and-coming filmmakers like Jennifer Brea, whose film Unrest premiered at Sundance earlier this year, and will play at South by Southwest next week. And it's a good movie, and I saw it, and you should see it too. You interviewed her, right? I did. Yes, yes, yes. She was my first Sundance interview. Any insights you remember? Oh, yeah. If you remember, I talked about it on a previous Indie Film Weekly. She had this disease called chronic fatigue syndrome, which uh, meant that she couldn't get out of bed one day. Um, She just woke up and was almost completely paralyzed um, and had no energy to do anything. And so she made a movie from her bed about the experience of trying to seek treatment. Yeah. So she shared some of her insights in this Twitter takeover. um, And the filmmakers all answered questions from other tweeters, and they gave all kinds of directing advice that they could fit into 140 characters. I mentioned Mira Nair. Her film Queen of Katwe premiered at TIFF last year, um, and she shared some words that could apply to any of us at one time or another. She fit some depth into a tweet. She said, power on, cultivate stamina, use rejection to spur you on, do everything fully and completely, never as a stepping stone to something else. On a similar note, Ama Asante, whose film A United Kingdom is in theaters now, got asked the question, what film-related failure of yours have you learned the most from, and how did it change you slash your process? To which she replied, having a project collapse twice and take 12 years to finance. I learned perseverance. Whew. Anyway, there's some real gems in there from 12 hours of tweeting, so I encourage you to stop by. Women's History Month led me to think about my friend Tiffany Schlein, who is an Emmy-nominated filmmaker and founder of the Webby Awards. I've talked about her on the show before. She recently premiered a short as part of Refinery29's Shatterbox Anthology, along with other directors like Kristen Stewart and Chloe Sevigny, actors turned directors. 
Um, her film's called 5050, and it's subtitled Rethinking the Past, Present, and Future of Women in Power. It sounds a little dry, the title, but her work is really, really fascinating and sort of infinitely watchable. Um, it's an animated collage essay in her signature style, a style which resulted in her having no less than four films premiere at Sundance over the years. And this one basically condenses the 10,000-year history of women in power into an entertaining 20-minute short. I thought of Tiffany not just because of her film's subject, but because what she does with her films is something every filmmaker can learn from, or at least every filmmaker who wants their work to be a conversation starter. She used a previous series of shorts, including one called The Science of Character, to start a global event called Character Day, which started not that long ago in 2014 with 1,500 events. Already sounds pretty impressive to me, but it grew to 93,000 events in 125 countries and all 50 states last year. So now she has big plans for 5050, and I called her up to find out what's in the works. So, what are your plans for 5050? Well, what we're going to do is our goal is to launch a global conversation about what it's going to take to get to 5050, a more gender balanced world. So, basically, I had this film. Um, that premiered at TED Women and on Refinery29 two weeks before the election called 5050, and it looks at the 10,000-year history of women in power. And, of course, we thought it was going to be coming out right before we got our first woman president, which, of course, it did not happen. And the day after the election, through tears and being very devastated, my team and I decided, well, we're going to do something called 50-50 Day. And basically this is based on a model that our film studio does where um, called Character Day, where we made a short film called The Science of Character that looks at the neuroscience and social science of character development. And we wanted to start a conversation with it, so we gave it away for free. We raised funding from foundation to make printed discussion materials, and we linked all the screenings together on a global Q&A. So the first year, we had over a 1,000 screenings. The second year, we had over 6,700. And then this last year, we had over 93,000 screenings in 125 countries in all 50 states, all showing our our film. Actually, we, we made a couple more after the first year, but our films on character development and then using our printed discussion materials and poster and then linking them all together with a basically like a, a global Google Hangout where we have speakers every hour. And wherever you're having your screening, you can tap in, hear from the speaker and ask them questions over social media. So it's this really exciting model as a filmmaker of taking a short film and really using it to launch a conversation and something that's all happening on the same day. It's so impressive, but it also sounds like a lot of work. So what advice it, do you everything's have? Everything's a lot of work. Everything's yeah, that's true. <laughs> I, mean, every, I mean, I always have looked at filmmaking, you know, that making the film is half of it, and how you get it out into the world is the other half. And I try to save my creative energy and funding and all that kind of stuff for the second half too. So for me, it is a lot of work, but it is the necessary work to get your work, your hard work making the film out there into the world. So my goal with most of my films is really to start conversations. So I'm always trying to think of creative ways to do that. Um, I think that's where it really comes from, but it is a lot of work. Everything's a lot of work. Everything's a lot of work. So what if uh, a filmmaker hears this and says, I'd like to get a, a bigger conversation started around my work. How would you advise them to get started? 
Um, well, I for sure would love people to try this model. I mean, I think it would be good to experience it on the other end. I mean, of course, I'd love all your listeners to sign up to do a 50-50 day screening or the conversation, but also because it's a filmmaking audience to see how it works on the other end. So, you know, it's like very simple sign up form, two minutes, and, and then you kind of see how we, we take your hand and lead you through the process. And then if they want to do it themselves, they can kind of look at what we did and, of course, build from it as everyone's doing online is, is, you know, basically this was a big experiment that really blossomed. And of course, you know, we had a lot of, we raised a lot of funding through grants and foundations to continue the experiment. But um, I think kind of seeing how we do it would be good. And then if they've made a film that they really think they want to start a conversation around it, think what, what kind of day they would want to design around it or what they could do. And, um, you know, like I said, it, it's an experiment that's really evolved. And so um, 50, 50 days set for May uh, 10th, and we just released the trailer. So we made a, tra- you know, we treat it like a film event. So we made a trailer explaining what the day is because people are still getting their head around what we're doing. Like a lot of people are like, what do you mean you have a global Q&A? Like, how does that work? And it, it's a lot of explaining. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of like, well, here you do a one-hour screen. You know, you can bring it to your company or your school, or wherever you gather. And that, actually, that was an interesting kind of hit for me, was after having a film in theaters and seeing how much work that was, which is so much work. And you're doing all this work to try to get people to go to a theater, all the press and all of this, to get people to go somewhere into a theater to watch a movie, which is super valuable. I go to movies all the time. I love that. But this model is, let's go to where people are already gathered. Instead of trying to move them somewhere, there's tons of people at a company, at an organization, at a school, at a library, at a museum. Let's bring it to them. Thanks, Tiffany. You can watch her film at letitripple.org or on Refinery29. As mentioned, as you hear these words come out of our mouths, we're filling our mouths with breakfast tacos and probably lunch tacos, dinner tacos, and all forms of taco. Yep, just filling our mouths with all forms of taco. <laughs> oh, no! Women's History Month. <laughs> Right, all kinds of fish tacos, and anyways, uh... Did you lose your train of thought there? <laughs> Got caught thinking about something else? Oof, it's like kind of warm in here. It's maybe a sickness I have. Yeah, and that's because we're at South by Southwest. Mm-hmm, and it's lovely here. Yeah, I gotta say, I love Austin. <laughs> <laughs> um, any, no, we're not there yet. So just just to give you a little bit of a rundown on some of the numbers about the festival this year. Um, this year, South by Southwest received 2,432 feature-length submissions. And out of those, 125 feature films were selected for 12 sections of programming. 133 shorts were selected as well. In the lineup this year, festival stalwarts such as Joe Swanberg and Kentucker Audley have returned with new movies, along with films from 51 first-time directors, which is really cool because South Bay is one of the premier destinations for first-time directors. Um, they don't seem to care as much programming films um, that star really big A-list cast and uh, established filmmakers. They want to see new visions and new voices. So that's great. Garrett Edwards, Jill Soloway, and Lee Daniels will be delivering the keynote speeches this year. That's a big draw in the film conference. And Terrence Malick's new film, Song to Song, will open the festival on March 10th. This year, South By also launched a new virtual reality section of the film festival, which is cool. It's surprising because they've shown VR every year and they've kind of been ahead of the curve on that. So I don't know 
if what's different this year is that they have made it officially part of the film like programming calendar? Yeah, they created a virtual arcade, which seems to be the buzzword for virtual reality screening little swivel chairs where you are next to other people watching VR. Thanks, Tribeca. <laughs> I think Tribeca came up with that. Oh, the arcade? Yeah. The films that have been programmed this year have some interesting common themes. One of them is money, another is technology, and another is freedom of speech, and about the creative process itself, which seems to be very on brand for a festival that aims to support creativity and technology. So we've mentioned South by Southwest several times. It's one of our favorite festivals. Well, it's one of my favorite festivals, and I'm so excited that I get to be there with John and Emily for their first time. But as you probably know, it has these kind of like three main focal points, film, interactive, and music. And they all overlap in different parts. But of course, we're most interested in film. And before every festival, we let you guys know about some of the films that we are most excited to see, which is such an impossible decision. We'll have a post up uh, this week with several of the films. But I think today we'll just maybe each mention one. And I will start with a film that might be named after the hosts of this podcast. It's called The Strange Ones. One of the most interesting films we saw at last year's South by Southwest was an omnibus compilation called Collective Unconscious. We actually did a podcast with the five emerging directors who worked on it. Each one of them interpreted each other's dreams in short film form. Lauren Wolkstein was one of them, and her section was absurdly entertaining. It's about a gym teacher trying to save his students from a pending lava-filled apocalypse right outside the door, and it's, like, pretty out of hand. It's actually kind of scary. Anyway, now she's back to collaborating with another filmmaker for a South by Southwest premiere. This film, as I mentioned, is The Strange Ones, and her co-director is Christopher Radcliffe. Both of them have impressive track records with their earlier efforts. In fact... This feature is based on their short of the same name that premiered at Sundance back in 2011. And that's a theme we like to bring up on the site and on the show. I like how filmmakers kind of make that leap from shorts to features. So I'm really curious to see how it turned out. I'm especially intrigued because it's its rollout has been kind of mysterious. There's I could hardly find anything about it online. Um, it's listed in the crime, drama, mystery, and thriller genres in the festival program. But the description is only two lines. And it kind of hints that it's going to be like this atmospheric road trip movie full of unexpected happenings. So, yeah, I'm really intrigued. Sounds cool. My movie is a probably a more mainstream movie. It's one of the films that's in the headliner section. Um, and it's, it's having its world premiere at South By. And this movie is called Baby Driver. Drive that baby. Which is weird because I'm seeing a movie called Infinitely Baby 2, so there's a lot of movies about babies. And and you're seeing small town crimes and small crimes. I'm seeing small crimes and small town crime and Baby Driver and Infinitely Baby. Well, hopefully I'm seeing Baby Driver. I say hopefully because there's some pretty big talent attached to this one. What about Baby Crimes? Nope. What about Baby Tacos? You guys... (laughs) Gross. I meant Little Tacos. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure you did. Anyways, I was talking about Edgar Wright as that big major talent. It's his new film. So I said I'm trying to get an interview with him because I haven't heard anything back yet from the PR firm, but I'm keeping my fingers crossed. It's a pretty huge premiere for South By, but I feel like it makes total sense due to Edgar's proclivity to genre film. 
I've been a huge fan of Edgar's films since Shaun of the Dead came out when I was like 12 years old. He just opened up my eyes to a whole new way of filmmaking that's not exactly satire because the stories are so good and they're just so well done. I'd, I'd call them more like homages that are funny to all the old action and horror films that he grew up with. This is his first movie since 2013's The World's End, which also starred Simon Pegg, and I'm pretty sure Nick Frost was in it too, his two like main dudes. This movie... Uh, Baby Driver stars none of them, but he's also made such films as Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, Hot Fuzz, and of course, Shaun of the Dead. Basically, he's never made a bad movie, and pretty much all these films are ones that have really stuck with me and resonated hard with me at whatever point in my life I saw them at. So, they're personal films for me. Like, Scott Pilgrim is a... If you're... I know it's Women's History Month, but if you're a boy and you're going through, like, a hard time... And just watch, just watch Scott Pilgrim. There's also a kick-ass girl character in that movie. Yeah, she's awesome, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. That's how she uh, got her beginnings, I think. She resonates me hard. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, so this new film, Baby Driver, is sure to be as action-packed as the rest of his films. It's about a young getaway driver who's coerced into working for a crime boss only to find himself taking part in a heist that is quote-unquote doomed to fail. It stars Lily James, Kevin Spacey, John Bernthal, John Hamm, and Jamie Foxx, so a great cast, and he's just one of the best writer-directors we have out there today, so I'm really stoked to see it. I, once again, only hope I can get the chance to, so... God, if you're out there, give John a chance. Or Brandy Fawn's PR, if you're out there, <laughs> give John a chance. Okay, so I actually saw my first South By film last night, so rather than talking about one I'm excited to see, of which there are many and I couldn't possibly choose, I'll tell you a little bit about the one I just saw. Um, it's called A Most Beautiful Island. It's a psychological thriller written, directed, and starred in by Ana Asensio, who plays an undocumented immigrant woman trying to make ends meet doing odd jobs. Her life is incredibly stressful, so when a friend suggests an opportunity to earn $3,000 in a one-stop shop sort of weird elite party situation, she follows the instructions and shows up at the correct address all dressed up, and then she's catapulted into a sadistic underground world. And that's about all I'll tell you. It's incredibly disturbing. It slowly builds up to a really intense climax, and I literally had to close my eyes during the entirety of the final scene. Um, and that was about five minutes. I was peeking through my fingers. The film is shot in Super 16, and the grain perfectly complements the gritty and voyeuristic realism. It was really awesome, and um, I'm looking forward to talking to the director and the cinematographer. Can I just ask what it takes to make you, like, how often do you close your, your eyes and feel like it doesn't take very much? Um, well, I do love horror films, but I have a low finger tolerance. Finger tolerance? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I was thinking, like... Like if a finger was cut off or something? No, 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 scratch that. Can you explain what exactly you mean by low finger tolerance? Okay, um, what I mean is it's, it doesn't take a lot for me to put my fingers on top of my eyes. In a horror movie. Okay. <laughs> That's a great new term we came up with today, I think. You hear it We here. coined it right here. Yep. Yes. Um, can I also ask, what are some of the uh, non-film things that you're most looking forward to? Just like not even like panels or anything, but 
I don't know. Is there anything in Austin that you're looking forward to doing? Like I'm, I'm personally excited about maybe checking out some of the shows that are going on there, like concerts and, uh, there's like a Mondo gallery, uh, that Mike Mitchell is showing stuff off at. And Mike Mitchell is a poster artist who, uh, or a graphic artist who makes all these awesome Star Wars prints. You should check them out. Um, yeah. So what are you guys excited about? Well, speaking about? of posters, I'm, I'm going to a panel called Your Movie Poster Doesn't Matter by the guy who runs Point on uh, poster design for Netflix. And he talks about their really complicated um, algorithmic process of deciding what kind of movie posters do well on which portions of the site. And apparently he has a lot of exciting info to share about how you should and shouldn't design your own movie poster. That's so, awesome. That's cool. If you like poster art too, John, this is totally up your alley. They always do a big poster art show in the convention center with like all the, you know, cool poster artists of the moment selling silk screens and you get to Ooh. see like everybody's, you know, all the all the great, really best edgy posters that have come out in like the last few years. So they're selling stuff there? Yeah. Awesome. Um I mean I need to spend some more time looking at the whole program before we get there. I've been focusing on getting the interviews down, which we always do. Um, but for me, because I'm like such a South by South veteran and it's such a like, you know, Mecca trip for me every year, I'm really excited to just like have reunions with people. One thing that's nice about South by Southwest is that it's a festival where a lot of people from the West Coast and East Coast meet since it's in the middle. So like at Tribeca, maybe a lot of my L.A. kind of San Francisco friends don't come. Um, but at South by Southwest, it's like a really fun meeting point. So and of course, tacos, tacos, tacos. Oh, and I'm excited about our filmmaker happy hour oh, that yeah. we're hosting. Um, we mentioned it last week on the show. If you guys are going to be in town, this will be a fun opportunity to meet us. And we love getting to know members of the No Film School community. So we're co-hosting a happy hour with Candy Factory Films and Bidslate, who we actually put a monster article up about this week. Um, the party's on Tuesday, March 14th at the Grackle on East 6th. So if you're going to be in town, definitely let us know. And now here's Charles Hain with some gear news for this week. Uh, all right. Hey, well, in gear news this week, Black Magic Design kicks us off with the release of two new color grading panels, the Micro and the Mini, that should have colorists and DITs along with, honestly, a lot of editors and directors pretty excited. So these are clearly products Blackmagic has been working on for a long time. Uh, Blackmagic is going to go head-to-head with Tangent with their Wave and Element panels, uh, JL Cooper. I mean, this is even a competitor for the Avid Artist color panel, although you don't see a lot of those anymore. Um, the Micro comes in under $1,000, and the Mini comes in just under 3000 These are both really affordable panels that offer a large amount of the functionality of the full advanced panels for a fraction of the price. That price on the advanced panels, if you've forgotten, is $29,995. So coming in at under three grand is a great deal. It's clear a lot of thought went into making these. Um, calling the Mini panel... A mini is almost a joke considering how full featured it is. It's really only a mini when you compare it to the cast iron construction of the advanced. Um, but the mini has LCD screens built in that make it really easy to navigate all of the menu functions. And for almost everything you do, they should be just as fast or as fast as the advanced panels. One thing really nice about the Mini is that you can power it with USB, you can power it with a battery, you can power it with a wall plug, you can even power it with 
power over Ethernet. So if you're in like a big facility and you want to run Ethernet to all the rooms, you can use it by Ethernet for both power and data. And if you have it plugged into wall power, you can use the USB port to charge your laptop. So like let's say you're on set, you only need one wall outlet. You run power into the board and then power from the board to your USB-C laptop. And that's all you need to do, which is pretty cool. Um, there's a lot of details like that that are very thoughtful, and I think a lot of people are very excited to get these boards in the field. Now, Blackmagic followed that up in the same press conference within the same hour with the announcement that they've updated their Ursa Mini camera to the Ursa Mini Pro. Now, this comes in at $6,000, so it's more expensive than the Ursa Mini, which was between four and five, depending upon options. But... It's got a host of new features that make the jump very reasonable. The biggest news is that there's an interchangeable lens mount. Previously, you had to buy an EF mount camera or a PL mount camera, but with the Ursa Mini Pro, you get an EF mount, and then for another $250, you can buy a PL mount that you can swap in the field, in a clean room, into the camera with nothing but a torque driver. There's even a Nikon mount they've designed that won't be out till this summer as a built-in aperture control to make up for the aperture ring that is often missing on Nikon glass. So it uses the same sensor as the Ursa Mini, but the Pro has a lot of new ergonomic tweaks, including dual SD cards, dual CF card slots, and an optional SSD attachment. There's an ND filter wheel, there's an external black and white LCD, there's loads more. In a really classy move, Blackmagic is offering a discounted price to the original full-sized Ursa owners. It lets you keep the original camera and buy into the new Pro platform at a very heavy discount. We also ran a fascinating lens test from brothers Martin and Oscar Ubaluz from MU2 Productions down in Miami. Uh, they did a comparison of five lines of anamorphics, which is always appreciated. However, they also took the time to test two camera platforms, which you often don't see in these lens tests. They shot on the area Alexa and the Red Weapon. Most filmmakers forget that flare characteristics aren't just a function of the lens. Different sensors are going to flare differently depending upon a variety of characteristics. The biggest one is color pattern. For instance, the Fujifilm X-Trans pattern flares much differently than the bare sensor you see on most cameras. But you're going to see difference even with bare sensor cameras like the Red Epic Weapon or the area Alexa. Uh, it'll come down to how the color filters are made on the sensor, what low-pass filtration might be in place in the lens. Even the color they paint the inside of the sensor housing can affect how you flare. And since with anamorphics, flare is one of the things you're really fascinated by, it's really nice to see they took the time to test those flares on two sensors. Among all the other options, you'll also see JDC lenses included. Joe Dunton camera has done a lot of cool stuff over the years, including like lens adapters for GoPro, but their uh, anamorphics have always been among my favorites. So excited to see those included in the comparison. Great. Thanks, Charles. We'll be right back with Charles for our Ask No Film School question after the break. This episode of Indie Film Weekly is brought to you by Vimeo. Life happens in 360 degrees, and now on Vimeo.com, so do your videos. Now you can upload, watch, and even sell your 360 videos on Vimeo. Vimeo 360 means immersive eye candy, immersive adventures, and immersive storytelling from the world's best filmmakers. Plus, Vimeo has tons of helpful resources for all experience levels. Join the new home for 360 video at Vimeo.com slash 360. And we're back. This week on Ask No Film School, Saran Karunin asks, There are many shots I see in movies that have a seamless pan from the floor up to the sky with no visible adjustment in exposure. 
When I try to attempt the same shot, I need to adjust my aperture, and it is very abrupt and not smooth as in professional work. My question is this. How do they achieve this? How do they go from such a dark location, such as a low-key room, to the outdoors with no visible adjustment in exposure settings? And to answer that question, I'm going to turn it back to Charles Hain. Thank you, John. That's a really great question, Saran. And we're actually going to start with your profile photo. So in your profile photo, it looks like you have a 5D. And we're going to start talking about trying to do a shot like this on a DSLR with still photo lenses. I think the problem you have is that most still photo lenses don't have a smooth aperture, which means when you move from one setting to another, either in full stops or third of a stop, there's going to be a noticeable click and then your exposure noticeably jumps. Professional cinema lenses have smooth aperture rings, which allow for a seamless aperture change. You can actually pay to have your still lenses declicked, or you can buy and rent declicked or cine-style lenses to make for a smooth aperture move. However, a smooth aperture is only one part of the equation. The other part is a tremendous amount of practice. When your aperture move is perfectly timed with the shot, it looks great. But moving the aperture ring too early or too late makes it look even more noticeable than before. Generally, on a big show, there's a trained crew of technicians with a lot of experience executing these shots. And I've even been around jobs where the DP themselves take over control of the aperture for the ramp, leaving the first AC to worry about focus because it's such an important task and the DP wants to be able to make the decision themselves. Um, Another thing to remember is that if your camera has the latitude, a lot can be done in the color grade to smooth out the transition. In fact, if the light only changes two to three stops, many filmmakers find it easier to do the exposure change entirely in posts. You have to have a wide latitude to capture enough detail to do this entirely in post. And the latitude of your 5D is likely to be so narrow, you wouldn't be able to do the change entirely in post. You do need to make some sort of shift in camera. One final note is on a lot of bigger shows, they have bigger lighting budgets. And a lot of times they don't want to rack aperture, so they will light the whole scene in such a way that no aperture rack is needed. So if you've got a dark room, you might bring up the exposure in that dark room so that the aperture rack is much smaller before you move outside into the bright daylight. You're never going to be able to light a dark room so it's actually as bright as a day exterior, but you'll get it close enough the aperture rack won't be as dramatic and you won't have to move the ring as far, making it easier to execute. It takes a lot of practice. Good luck, and uh, when you're ready, send us some samples when you've got it down pat. Great. Thanks, Charles. If you're not going to be at Southwest and you're not going to see the new films coming up, there are plenty of good indies coming out to all sorts of platforms this week that you can check out. Yeah, a ton of these movies. I mean, you're going to hear Emily a lot in this section because we've covered them all last year at festivals, so it's cool to see them actually like getting some wider recognition uh, almost a year later. Um, So we'll hear from Emily later. But first, coming to Netflix, on March 13th, you can check out Pete's Dragon. This is directed by indie stalwart David Lowry, whose popularity after Ain't Them Bodies Saints propelled him to a blockbuster Disney level. It's a remake of the Disney classic about the adventures of an orphan boy named, you guessed it, Pete, and his best friend Elliot, who just so happens to be a dragon. And I'd just like to take a moment to shout out to my friend Pete, who was also named Pete. Stay Pete, Pete. Hey, Pete. Pete, Pete. Pete. Happy, happy Woman's uh, Month, Pete. Emily wrote an article about Lowry's 12 years in the making online production diary back when this film was released theatrically in August. And it's a trove of great advice for filmmakers trying to break onto the scene. One such piece of advice is to avoid focusing on complexity. He says, 
and bear with me, this is a little confusing, it all comes down to taking a scene that at its heart is about two people talking in a room and gracefully making it feel like it's not just two people talking in a room without going so out of your way that the audience catches you trying to make two people talking in a room feel like something more than it actually is. Did you get that? That actually makes sense. It's yeah, it cool. does. Don't overextend yourself, but try to distill it. Pete's going to love that shout out. <laughs> Pete. I just found out that this film that I'm about to talk about is coming to Netflix, which is super exciting because I actually included it at, on my list in 2016 as one of the most egregiously underseen films that year. And I was really hoping that it would get good distribution. So this is awesome. So Notes on Blindness will hit Netflix on March 15th, and it was far and away one of the most unique and compelling films I saw last year. It was the first Sundance premiere to showcase a virtual reality experience alongside it, and in the process, it became an unwitting testament to the unique properties of cinema, namely its ability to elicit emotion. Unlike the VR experience, which was phenomenological, Notes on blindness. <laughs> You're <That's> really impressive. <laughs> say it again. <laughs> Do you want me to? Actually, no, just say the word again. Phenomenological. Wow. <laughs> okay, continue. Uh, Notes on blindness, the film, is an emotional narrative of a very soulful man named John Hull who comes to terms with his adult onset blindness. I spoke to the filmmakers last fall, James Spinney and Peter Middleton, who, by the way, definitely listened to this podcast. So, hey, both of you. It was awesome to meet you, and I hope you're doing well. (laughs) That was awkward, but I will continue. (laughs) They shared their fascinating reverse creative process, which started with Hull's audio diaries. So they had these audio diaries of Hull talking about what it meant to him to be blind from the 70s, and Spinney and Middleton shot evocative scenes to accompany the recordings in order to illustrate what Hull describes as as the, quote, interiority of blindness. Their actors actually lip-synced to the original recordings, um, and their their process was a very unique and fruitful one. So I recommend you all checking it out. I've heard so much about this film and just, like, how much people have enjoyed it, but I've never been really able to really understand what they're talking about. <laughs> so I'm excited to actually see it for myself because it seems like a really hard movie to explain. Yeah, it's about it's a film about going blind, um, and it uses visuals to explain and and get you into the experience of something that is inherently non-visual. Interesting. Phenomenological. <laughs> and coming to HBO on March 13th is Cries from Syria. This film premiered in Sundance back in January. We talked about it on the show because it was suspected that it was one of the films that um, might have incited Russian hacking at Sundance because of Russia's involvement with Syria. So, so much intrigue. Um, It's a doc that focuses on child protesters, revolution icons, activists and their relatives, and high-ranking army generals who defected to join the fight of the people across Syria to Turkey through Jordan, Lebanon, and Europe. It's uh, directed by Evgeny Afanevsky, a Russian director. Didn't he do Winter on Fire also? I think he did. Um, the the documentary about the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. If you all saw that, it was on Netflix. It still is on Netflix, too. It's a Netflix yeah. original. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so he's got a running theme of protest, clearly. Um, none of us were able to see this at Sundance, but I'm really glad it'll be out on HBO because several people who I spoke to at, on the ground at Sundance mentioned it as one of the most affecting films of the festival. Speaking of affecting films, (laughs) uh, this next theatrical release coming to theaters on March 10th is Raw, 
Julia Ducourneau's lurid and violent film is a coming-of-age story about a young girl in vet school who becomes a cannibal. Its provocative imagery is not for the faint of heart. I heard from people at Cannes where it originally premiered and other places where it subsequently screened, like Sundance, that there were walkouts in the theaters and talk about putting your fingers in front of your eyes. Yeah. I beat tacos. What's what's the, the finger rating here? Finger rating's probably 10.5 out of 10. A 10.5 finger rating? Yep. So what do you use for the other thing? A toe. Okay. A toe. All right. Or an elbow. <laughs> Um, So the message is about vegetarianism, primal impulses, and feminism. And it is kind of a punch in the face. Um, So see it if you like that kind of thing. (laughs) And if you don't, get ready to cover your face so it doesn't get punched. (laughs) Another film coming to theaters on March 10th is Personal Shopper. I also saw this back at Cannes last year. And um, it's Olivier Assayas who did Clouds of Sils Maria, which was a, a great film. I thought a lot of people... I had other things to say about it, but um, I personally loved it. It stars Kristen Stewart as a personal shopper and part-time ghost hunter. And yes, that is apparently a multi-hyphenate job that you can have. It was one of the most divisive films at Cannes last year. I remember in its first press screening, which was the first screening of the film ever, it was met with boos and hisses. But as soon as I left the theater, I was amazed to hear that many critics actually loved it. And I remember thinking to myself, like, did we see the same movie? These people thought it was really daring and different, and then it was only till later that I talked to other people and realized that it had actually split evenly down the middle with love and hate. So I had some hate compatriots. What makes the movie so complicated is its genre fluidity. This can obviously be a positive attribute. It can, you know, make films interesting and innovative, but it didn't play to personal shoppers' strengths. So, like the ghost of the recently deceased twin brother for whom Kristen Stewart spends the movie searching, Olivier Assayas' film is trapped in a purgatory between horror, melodrama, and experimental film, and it doesn't know which one it is. Two fingers rating. Yes. Okay, so I've seen a theme emerge here for the film releases this week. I would say, with the exception of Pete's Dragon, unless you're a tiny child, um, the theme is movies that are hard to watch. (laughs) So this one, I would say, gets the second ranking after Raw. Um, Brimstone coming to theaters March 10th. Just eight fingers. Yeah, just give the finger rating. We we have a precedent. We do. We do. We have one. Um, I would say this is a nine finger rating, Brimstone. It's Dutch director Martin Kulhoven's first English language film. And even though it's in, in the English language, it was actually co-produced by nearly 10 different European countries. It stars Guy Pierce as a sadistic reverend who scours the American frontier in search of his stepdaughter, played by Dakota Fanning, whom he wants to make his subservient wife. The film is grim, in all capital letters, grim, <laughs> very dark, and spares no expense showcasing the misogyny of the old American West. There's a lot of brutal scenes, and um, it's it, this is not for the faint of heart, as I said before. When I spoke with Coolhoven last week, he said he had the entire vision from the get-go. He wrote the film after having been sent a slew of terrible Hollywood scripts that he absolutely did not want to direct, and instead went for a 2.5-hour, brutal, fully realized American neo-Western. Here's Coolhoven on his rigorous process of script revisions. Be very tough on yourself, you know. I mean, uh, if you have a good uh, first draft, you know, get people in to read it. Get really people who you really think are very good. Get them. And and uh, what I did is I I got them all. Uh, I got uh, 
authors that I you know that I thought were very good that had written books and everything, and I got them to to read the script, and I put them together, and I I was not even there. I put somebody who I know uh, I put there, so that that can be as tough as they you know because they can they're always going to be polite uh, if you're there. And now moving on to some upcoming deadlines and events. The first opportunity deadline is for the IDFA Academy Summer School, and that deadline is Wednesday, March 15th. IDFA is an international documentary film festival that takes place each November in Amsterdam. The IDFA Academy Summer School offers first or second time documentary directors the opportunity to meet and work with highly esteemed filmmakers and film professionals who are willing to share their knowledge and experience with emerging film talent. The program combines individual coaching with group sessions with an inspiring cultural program, all conducted in a relaxed and nurturing atmosphere. It takes place July 3rd to the 8th, and there are two training possibilities to apply to script development and editing consultancy. I want to apply. And our second opportunity is for a contest that we wrote about this week called the Zakudo My Story Film Competition. That deadline is on March 31st, so you have a few weeks to do a pretty simple thing, actually. The camera accessory company announced their My Story film competition this week, and it's centered around making a 60-second video that illustrates the moment you knew you wanted to be a filmmaker. Zakudo asks, as prompt, how did you become a filmmaker? Were you inspired by a certain film or by listening to a filmmaker speak? Was it while holding your first camera or watching a friend laugh at your YouTube video? So you got to make a video about that moment. This actually reminds me of those short films they play in front of the Olympics every year that are like the impetus of an athlete, mm. you know, mm-hmm. like the first time I jumped off the couch. It's actually a great seed for inspiration if you want to apply. And if you win, it has a great prize package that gives you pretty much everything you'll need for your next film, you know, except for a camera or lens. Zakudo has partnered with Adobe, Cartoni, Kessler, Kino, Portabrace. Premium Beat, Rocket Stock, Rode, Rotolite, Studio Bender, and Vid Atlantic to provide aspiring filmmakers with the foundation to get started creating content. So that's like a package full of shit from all of those sponsors. Yeah, the top prizes packages are worth like 50 grand. It's yeah. amazing. So go ahead and check out all the details to that on No Film School and apply. Really, it's free. We've got some festival deadlines coming up. March 10th, we have one that's close to home. It's the extended deadline, so this is your last chance for the Brooklyn Film Festival, a 20-year running fest, which is international, competitive, and they accept submissions in six categories, narrative features, documentary features, short narrative, short doc, experimental, and animation. They also offer prizes totaling over 50 grand, so apply and come visit us in Brooklyn. The Southern Circuit Tour of Independent Filmmakers has a deadline on March 10th. This is the late deadline. And it was selected as one of Movie Maker Magazine's 50 film festivals worth the entry fee back in 2015. This one is kind of interesting because it's the nation's first regional tour for independent filmmakers uh, in that it provides filmmakers with a paid opportunity to participate in a multi-venue tour of the American South. So it's composed of three separate circuits, each with six filmmakers who travel by air and auto to an estimated six to eight communities each throughout the southeastern United States. This circuit takes place the months of September, October, November, February, March, or April, and filmmakers tour for an estimated 10 to 12 days. Off the Odense Film Festival has a deadline of March 13th. It's an international short fest that takes place August 28th to September 3rd in Denmark. 
The grand prize award goes to the best film in the main competition. The winner will receive an off diploma and 6,700 euros. And this is an Oscar qualifying award. Really, guys, though? You can't just round it up to 7,000 euros? Cheapskates. <laughs> um, a film festival with a very catchy and somewhat ear-pricking name is <laughs> Dances with Wolves. How many fingers do you give that name? <laughs> <laughs> About 4.5. <laughs> the Dances with Films Film Festival um, has a deadline on March 15th. It takes place in L.A., June 1st to, th- to 11th. And it's been on the festival circuit for 20 years and touted by the Huffington Post as the future of independent film and voted by Movie Maker Magazine as one of the top 25 coolest film festivals on the planet. The Dances with Films Festival presents over 130 films each year, to the L.A. filmmaking community. This is a serious question. Do they have anything to do with dancing? Is there a dance theme or it's just... I think it's like a poetic... It just like is meant to conjure an image of you dancing with your best spirit films. Ooh. We'll have to think about what our best spirit films are for another show. So as mentioned, if you're going to be in Austin this week, hit us up. You can leave a comment uh, on the post associated with this podcast with your email or... Find us on Twitter and uh, let us know you're going to be there so we can put you on the list. And, of course, you'll have to be looking out for tons of coverage from South by Southwest about all the latest upcoming films that are probably going to be award winners this coming year. And South by Southwest has lots of panels with industry experts. So we'll bring you lots of firsthand accounts of how to succeed in filmmaking and all its various aspects. And on next Monday's podcast, it might seem a little bit weird, but we are coming out with a DP roundtable that we did back at Sundance, even though it's a week where we're just going to be at South by Southwest. It's a great podcast, so we, you know, had to use it. Oakley Anderson Moore is conducting the interview, and it's with two filmmakers from Sundance, so it should be great. One of the DPs on that podcast is from my favorite Sundance movie, Gook, and he had a, it was shot in black and white, and he had, has a really interesting story. And I think the other one is from Chasing Coral. It's an environmental doc, and there are all kinds of stories about what the DP and director had to go through to shoot underwater and build up all kinds of crazy rigs. So I think it'll be a good one. Yeah, for sure. Meanwhile, we will link to all the articles and opportunities that we talked about in this episode at this week's podcast post on nofilmschool.com. And you can also go to nofilmschool.com to learn lots, lots more about the craft of filmmaking. And of course, please subscribe on iTunes. Give us that high, high rating. Hi, hi. And stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. I'm at Taco on Twitter. You know you're not. <laughs> I'm at Yale Booter. That's what I thought. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Underscore Taco. Underscore. I'm, I'm at Taco underscore Enchilada underscore Taco. <laughs> Wrapped in a burrito. Michelada. <laughs> it's a drink. It's a good drink. And we're all at No Film School. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>